also continuing our series in Romans chapter 8 today, and I'm really excited to dig into this chapter with you. Last week, Scott talked about the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote more than two-thirds of the New Testament, and how the Apostle Paul admits in Romans chapter 7 that he knows the thing that he wants to do and he doesn't do it anyway. And then there are times when he doesn't do the very thing that he knows that he should do. He's building up to this point where he's pointing out that not only is this in him, but it's in us and it's in humanity, this part of us that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, we wanna do the good thing, we wanna do the loving thing, we wanna do the peaceful thing, and then we don't do it. We don't want to do the harmful thing. We don't want to do the destructive thing. We don't want to do the thing that's not good. And we do it anyway. And so what do we do with this? Well, he finally answers the question in Romans chapter 8. Now, several months ago, I shared a story with you about how in the past, I have ruined several of our family vacations. Do any of you remember that story? Okay, a few of you. So I wanna share another story with you today. You see, oftentimes when I am sitting down knee to knee and eye to eye with people and I'm hearing their stories, I have the privilege of reminding them that our growth and our healing is not always linear. That oftentimes what winds up happening is we take two steps forward and then we take one step back. Now, I'm married into a family of traditions. How many of you, traditions are your thing? You do the same thing over and over again, and if anybody suggests changing it, you excommunicate them from the family. Okay, so you know the life that I married into. One of our family traditions is for the last 10 years, we go, the whole family, four generations, to Palm Springs in July. Now, when I share that with people one-on-one, they often look at me with this really confused look on their face and they say, why? And I respond and say, we don't know. It's just when we go. And so we planned our trip and a couple of weeks ago, we took off to Palm Springs. We rent a house that we all share together and my husband's grandmother, so my kid's great grandma is there and my husband's parents and his brother and sister and my niece and our children were all there. The only ones we're missing are the dogs, but that is a non-negotiable. The dogs are not invited to come on vacation. Now, another tradition in our family, this is really important if you marry into the Harrison house, Food. How many of you, when you go on vacation, food is life? It is the thing you plan everything else around. Where are you going to eat? What are you gonna cook? What's the food? What's the treats? Any of you? Yeah, okay, this is the life that I married into happily. I'm all about the food. I could probably do without Palm Springs in July, but let me keep the food, please. So we're driving into Palm Springs, three cars, Our car is leading the way. Where do you think we're gonna go before we even get to the vacation house? The grocery store. Because we need food and we need treats and we need snacks. So I have a list of all the things because I am feeding a family of five. So this is no joke. You gotta come prepared. My husband says, Carissa, can you find us a grocery store? 
kind of near the vacation house. I said, okay. So I'm searching on my phone, pulling up all the close grocery stores, and do you know which one I picked? Sprouts. Now, I am gluten-free and dairy-free and not by choice. So my natural human choice was we're just gonna go to Sprouts because they've got gluten-free bread and gluten-free treats and the best dairy-free ice cream out there. And so we go to Sprouts and we walk in, there's all of us and I'm trying to keep track of at least my youngest, Abby, because she really should not be let loose in a store by herself. And everybody's asking me and showing me, mom, can I have, mom, can I have? And I'm going through my list. And all of a sudden, about two minutes in, I'm starting to hear, they don't have the bagels that I want, and they don't have Triscuits here, and they don't have good ice cream here. And I'm realizing that I picked the wrong grocery store. It was the right store for me, but it was the wrong store for everybody else. And then my kids are coming up and they're saying, mom, they don't have any good snacks here. There are no good treats here. And my niece comes over and she's looking for something that she can't find and I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. And I'm starting to feel guilty. And I'm starting to get frustrated because not only do they not have what everybody else wants, but I can't find the stuff on my own list. Halfway through the store, my niece comes over and says, Kissa! She calls me Kissa instead of Carissa. Kissa! Everybody's done. They're waiting for you. Look at my list. I'm about two thirds of the way through this list. I'm trying to feed this family of five. It's 115 degrees outside. There's nowhere for them to go. They've shopped, they've got all their groceries. And my husband, who's super kind and patient with me when he sees me kind of spiral into this state of overwhelm, says, how can I help? What do you need? And I looked at him and I said, I just wanna put the list down and leave the shopping cart and get out of here. I was feeling embarrassed. And I knew that I had inconvenienced the rest of the family. Not only did they not get what they wanted, they'd have to go to another store later, but now they're waiting on me as I'm frantically searching through this grocery store where I don't know where the things are, trying to find the food so that my children don't starve. I mean, this was just not my best moment. So I ditched the list, get the bare minimum of what we needed, and I am feeling all of the feels, like frustration and anger, and my head is just not in a good space. We check out, may or may not have snapped at a child or two along the way, and I realize that I have to walk out and face my in-laws. Now, I married into the best possible in-law situation possible. They're incredible people, but there's still a whole dynamic here those of you who are married know what I'm talking about. And I had a choice in that moment. I can either withdraw into myself, which is what we want to do in those moments. We want to hide and withdraw and distance ourselves, or I can show up knowing that I had made the wrong choice. So I did, and we get in the car. I had nine minutes to figure this out. Nine minutes and 115 degree weather to figure out in the car how I was gonna show up in this vacation. And I realized when I got to the car that I wasn't feeling angry and I wasn't feeling frustrated and I wasn't feeling overwhelmed, that those were secondary emotions. What I was really feeling in that moment was shame. It wasn't that I realized I had made the wrong choice, it was that in that moment I felt wrong. I felt incompetent. 
Now, some of you are listening to this going, really? Yeah, I know. It doesn't sound rational, but I know that as humans, you have stories too. They don't look exactly like mine. But there was this feeling of shame, this, this moment where I'm realizing in real time, I want to be joyful and I want to be patient and I want to be lighthearted about making a mistake on vacation. It's no big deal. We'll figure it out. But I was not doing and feeling any of those things. I wanted to, but it wasn't happening. This is part of what the Apostle Paul is describing as he's building in Romans chapter one through seven. If you're reading through those chapters, you're not feeling very good about yourself because the Apostle Paul is holding up a mirror to all of us. This is the dilemma that we face. We want to do good, but then we don't. We don't want to do the things that hurt and harm, and then we do. There are parts of us that at the end of the day, in our natural human power, we are not able to fully control it, to fix it, to stop it, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us. And so we get to the end of Romans chapter seven, and we're just kind of like, are you kidding me? Come on, Paul, what's the good news? What's the gift here? What gives? If it's really this bad, what do we do with this? Do we just throw in the towel? Do we just give up? Do we just let it go? Well, in Romans chapter eight, after all of that buildup, the apostle Paul finally answers the question. And so we are in verses one and two where he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that word condemnation, it's unusual to us. When was the last time you heard someone say, I condemn you? Just, I mean, hopefully that's never been a reality for you. It's just not a word that we use, but we know what it feels like to be condemned. Other people have condemned, even sometimes with a look or a glance, not only other people, but oftentimes I think we experience condemnation from ourselves the most. There is a sense within us where we are judging and condemning ourselves. And this word condemnation really connotates judgment with the expectation of punishment. And so what Paul is saying to us is there is no judgment with punishment coming your way. That because of Jesus and what God has done in and through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no condemnation you're on the receiving end. You are justified. And, and we've talked over the last few weeks about how that word justified, another word that we don't really use very often, but it's that you are made right. You are in the right. God sees you as right. So there's no condemnation. You are justified. And then he goes on in Romans chapter eight and the themes that Paul writes about and dives into with us are Amazing, they're incredible. We could do an entire sermon series just on Romans chapter eight and it would blow our minds. So good are some of these themes. One of the things that he talks about is the spirit versus our flesh. Now, when we read that at first glance, oftentimes we think that the flesh is our physical body. 
But what the Apostle Paul is talking about is not the physical body, it's our natural human power, natural human ability. That what we can do and accomplish with the Spirit of God is what is not possible when we lean into our flesh or our natural human abilities. Our natural human abilities fall short in sprouts when it's 115 degrees and everybody's asking you for things and you realize they're not happy with you. But there's a different way when we lean into and access the Spirit of God at work in our life. And then he talks about adoption that we are chosen by God, that we are identified as his sons and his daughters, and that with that comes an inheritance. That there is goodness available to us as God's children here and now, and there is also something that is not quite yet. We are adopted, we are his kids, we are his heirs, and he sees us and loves us like we are his kids because we are. And then he talks about groaning. Any of you ever read through Romans chapter eight and you think, what's with all the groaning, the wordless groans and the metaphors? He uses childbirth as a metaphor here. I'm not gonna dig into that with you today. I'll leave that for Scott for another time, but he talks about groaning. And it's this picture of, we have a taste of the goodness and the love and the faithfulness of God. We have a taste. And then we groan because we realize there's more that we don't yet have, that we don't yet know, that we can't quite put our finger on. We have a taste of the way that God heals and restores and redeems our lives and our stories, and yet we groan because we still experience pain and tragedy and rejection and the ramifications of other people's choices that they make along the way. And so we groan because the kingdom of God is here and it's now and it's today and it's also not yet. And so the apostle Paul talks about this groaning and then he talks about suffering to glory. This is human suffering to glory. It's following the pattern of Jesus. Jesus suffering to glory. And Paul writes about us following that pattern of suffering to glory. Glory is another word. What is glory? We, we kind of have an idea of what it means for God to have glory, but what does it look like for us to follow in the pattern of Jesus and have glory? Well, one commentator that I read, described it in one of the most brilliant ways I've come across. And it's that when we experience glory as humans, it's when we come to experience that our creator is pleased with us. When we begin to live into the truth, when we begin to trust that our creator, that God is pleased with us, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are, because we're adopted, because we're chosen, because we're created in the image of God, that God is pleased with us. We move from suffering, whether it's suffering caused and created by ourselves or caused and created by other people or just living in a broken world, we move to glory because we are chosen. God is pleased with us. His face shines upon us. Have you ever walked in a room and a loved one, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was a parent, maybe it's one of your children, maybe a good friend, you walk into a room and their face lights up. 
They're excited to see you. They're excited to be with you and you see it in their countenance. When the scriptures talk about God's face shining upon us, it's that our creator is pleased with us, pleased to be with us, to be in relationship with us. And then at the end, the Apostle Paul closes with four questions. Now, whenever something is repeated, we kind of want to pay attention. And so this is where I want to focus our attention today is at the very end of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul asks the same question four times in four different ways. He is working really hard to drive home a point. He's using words on paper to try to help us begin to understand the implications of all of this. And so we're going to pick up in verse 31 where the Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against us, against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you feel it crescendo and build where Paul is desperately trying to communicate this truth to us that nothing will separate us from the love of God, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad our choices are, no matter how bad shame grabs and grips us, Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so what I want to do is I want us to look at those four questions. Because each of those four questions has a significant implication for our lives, for our relationships, for our identities in Christ. So the first question, who can be against us? This is what Paul writes. He asks, who? Who can be against us? God is for us, and so we no longer need to force our way. God is for us, and so we no longer need to force our will upon others. We no longer need to force our way. This is counter to my flesh, friends. This is counter to our culture. There are so many moments and times when I want to force my will upon the people around me, upon my spouse, upon my children, upon those around me. But if I can remember 
that God is for me, then I don't have to force my will upon anyone. Dallas Willard is one of my favorite authors and theologians, and I read one time he was commentating on the words of Jesus where Jesus is teaching us to let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And in the past, I always read that and thought, well, yeah, tell the truth. I thought that's what he meant there. Well, Dallas suggests that possibly what Jesus is expressing to us is not to force our will upon others through manipulation. You see, sometimes we say no or we say yes because what we really want is for someone to do what we want them to do. Sometimes we force our will onto people and it is overt and it is obvious. And other times we find ourselves forcing our will upon people through subtle or not so subtle manipulation. But if I can trust and live in the reality that God is for me, then I don't need to manipulate the people around me. I don't need to force my, I can let them live and let them be and trust them to God. Now, here's my disclaimer. This does not mean that I become a doormat. It does not mean that I don't speak up and share what I need. It does not mean that I do not set healthy boundaries in my life, limits. It does not mean that I allow everybody around me to force their will upon me. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus had some good boundaries that we see in the gospels. But if God is for me, and I believe that he is, then in those moments when I want to force my way and my will on others, I can take a pause and choose to trust that God is for me. And I don't have to force my way. And then the second question, who will bring a charge against us? God has chosen us. And so we don't need to feel ashamed. We are adopted into the family of God. We are chosen. And all of our uniqueness and all of our stories and all of our choices in the middle of sprouts, when you're about to have a meltdown, we are chosen and we are loved. And so we do not need to feel ashamed. Now, what's interesting to me is as I read uh, psychologists and philosophers and even now neurotheologians, which just is so fun for me, but I, I just can't even play in that ballpark, but I try. What they're finding across the board is that shame is often at the foundation of so much of our brokenness and so much of our woundedness. It's this feeling, this sense that we are unworthy of love and belonging. It's instead of I made a mistake, it's I am a mistake. Instead of I did something bad, I am bad. They're finding that it drives a lot of our addiction a lot of the choices that we make that we really don't wanna make, but we feel this compulsion to make and so we do them anyway. And so here's the thing. Shame is a universal part of the human experience. We all feel it. In those moments, if we can begin to recognize, like I did in the car on that ride home that day, this is shame, I am feeling shame right now. I don't have to listen to the shame. Just because I feel unworthy of love and belonging does not mean that that is true about me. Just because I am feeling wrong and feeling bad does not make it true. And so if in those moments we can begin to pause and remind ourselves that we are chosen, that we are loved, that we are adopted into the family of God, that we are heirs to the inheritance of God, then we interrupt that pattern. 
you know, when somebody's charging us, they're, they're accusing us. And a natural response to that is that feeling of shame. And then the third question, who will condemn us? There's that word again. Who will condemn us? Whether it's someone else pointing out what you did wrong, kind of like my kids that day, or it's yourself in your own mind and in your own heart condemning your own choices and your own actions. Paul says, who will condemn us? No one. He's not saying that no one is ever going to condemn us. He's saying that they don't hold the power to condemn us. God's taken that back. And so Jesus is interceding for us. We don't stand alone. When we feel condemned, when we feel accused, we're not alone. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying for us. Eugene Peterson translates that scripture in the message and says that he is sticking up for us. So imagine in some of your hardest moments when you are condemning yourself, your choices, your actions, your things, I want you to begin to imagine Jesus sticking up for you. Now I wish I could give you a play-by-play of exactly how it works for Jesus to pray for us and intercede on our behalf. Paul also writes twice in Romans chapter eight that the Spirit of God does the same thing, that the Spirit of God intercedes for us and prays for us. There is a lot of mystery here. And I don't know of a theologian that can explain it to you adequately. But I wanna trust in this truth because there is something powerful and beautiful and life-giving when I picture in those moments when I need support and I need unconditional love and I need encouragement, that Jesus is sticking up for me, is praying for me, is interceding on my behalf, that I am not alone in those really lonely moments when shame has caused me to turn in and isolate. Because that's one of the symptoms of shame is we retreat, we isolate, we turn inside. And then the fourth question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. I mean, it sounds so simple. And if you've been in church your whole life, I know you've heard it a gazillion times, but I want you to hear it a gazillion times more. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so we don't have to feel afraid. Now notice that I didn't say we never feel afraid because fear is real and it's human and it's gonna be a part of our reality here on earth. We are wired up neurobiologically to feel and experience fear and some fear is actually good, it keeps us safe. When my kids are doing crazy flips in the pool and my husband's throwing them up in the air, I feel fear and at some points I interject and say, okay, we're gonna pause now. It might keep them safer or I might just go inside and let them continue to do what they're doing because they're having a lot of fun and my anxiety just needs to go into the house for a moment. Nothing separates us from the love of God. So when we feel afraid about what we're experiencing now, about things that have happened in the past, about things that we are picturing could potentially happen in the future, we can pause and remind ourselves that nothing separates us from the love of God. 
Nothing separates us from the love of God that works and wills in our lives for our good. Now, also in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Some of you have heard that verse. Some of you have had that verse maybe spoken over you when it didn't feel so good. Because sometimes we think that verse means that all things are good. But that is not what the Apostle Paul wrote. All things are not good. If you've experienced tragedy or trauma or loss, those things are not good. They grieve the heart of God, just like they grieve our hearts. The promise there is that all of those things, God is working out for good. And when I look back at my own tragedy and trauma and loss, none of those things are good. But I have been able to see God, work them out for good in my life. And I experience the goodness of God in spite of those things. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if Jesus and the Spirit of God interceding on our behalf has anything to do with how all things work together for good. I don't know. There's mystery there too. But I think they might be connected. And so, how do we move this truth off of the paper of the scriptures and into our lives, into the reality of our experiences and the reality of our fears and into the reality of our relationships? We can feel the Apostle Paul doing his best to put to words the way that he has experienced God. And there are two things that he works through in chapter eight that he says, if you build your life on this foundation, this is what life in Christ looks like. And the first thing is that it's already done. Life in Christ for us is accomplished in what Jesus has done, in his life and death and resurrection. And this foundation is also built on the action of the Spirit at work in our lives. It's both. And I know this because of what he wrote, and we see it highlighted because the Apostle Paul uses the word spirit or pneuma is the Greek word. He uses it 21 times in a chapter that has 39 verses. So again, this is something that I think we might wanna pay a little bit of attention to. And so I just wanna highlight for us, what are some of the ways that the Apostle Paul says the Spirit is at work in our lives? What, is it even, what does it even look like? Can we begin to open our eyes and open our minds and our hearts to what the Spirit of God is doing. In verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes that we are led by the Spirit. And the word that he uses is like a compulsion, like an inner compulsion, that just like I have fleshly human compulsions to do the things that I don't wanna do. We all know what that's like. That when we are led by the Spirit, there's a compulsion to act, to choose, to love with God. And again, there's mystery here, and one person's experience of it is going to be different than another person's experience of it, but we are led by the Spirit. He also writes in verse 16 that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And, and I am, I'm wondering if maybe some of you think back to moments in your story, moments in your faith journey. You can't prove it. 
You can't even maybe put total words to it, but there was a moment internally in your spirit when you just knew. You knew that you knew that you knew that you are loved by God. You knew that you knew that you knew that you are his son or you are his daughter and you can't tell us how and you can't prove it. But the spirit of God testified with your spirit. That's what the apostle Paul is talking about there. He says, we have the first fruits of the spirit. Do I have any gardeners in the room? Any of you harvesting all the things right now? Yeah, you know what first fruits are. And so what Paul's writing about here is we're getting a taste in this life of the kingdom of God, a taste of what it's like to live life with God. But just like one taste of ice cream or one taste of a dessert, or in my case, one chip with a dip of salsa is just never enough. We get a taste here of what is to come. It's just the beginning. And the Spirit helps us to recognize that. And then he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He's describing here like the Spirit helps to carry our burdens when we're weak. Strength when we're weak. Power when we're weak. Again, things that we cannot prove. We cannot point to and say, there it was and here's why and let me give you all of the reasons There's mystery there. There's trust involved. There's an awareness that God's ways are higher than mine and in so many ways are inconceivable. We do our best, just like the Apostle Paul, to put words to it. But at the end of the day, our words fall short. And so I have three questions that I want us to consider asking this week that might help us begin to notice the activity of the Spirit in our lives, in our stories, in our relationships. Questions that help draw our focus and attention to the action of God in our lives. Because we have so many things that distract us and grab our attention, and that's normal and it's human. But I wonder, what we would see. I wonder what we would encounter. I wonder how these words would jump off of the page and into the reality of our lives in new ways if we trained ourselves to begin to see and to begin to look and to begin to ask. And so the first question is simply, friends, let's ask God to help us see the spirit at work in our lives. There's an invitation there and we'll trust that God's gonna honor that in a way that fits your story and your personality and your wiring, your uniqueness. And then the second thing would be, let's think back to a time when we knew or we thought or we're wondering if maybe the Spirit of God was at work in our story and at work in our life. Let's remember together and then let's take a moment or a few moments and express gratitude for the ways that God has been at work in our story, for the ways that he has testified with our spirit, for, for the ways that we've experienced some of the first fruit of God's activity in our life. And then can we share that with someone in our life? Maybe it's a small group, maybe it's someone that you serve on a team with, maybe it's a friend or a spouse, but 
Something incredible happens when we begin to share our stories with one another. We are a people of stories. No matter how educated we become, no matter how advanced we become, human beings are people of stories. And then the last question would be, could we ask someone in our life that we trust to share with us a time when the love of God jumped off of the page and into their life? What was that like for them? How would they describe it? How might they put words to it? What I have found, and I get the privilege of hearing these stories more often than most because of the way that I get to serve, is that God shows up in the most creative ways and that it's never the same way in your life that it is in my life. I mean, just in my own home, the way that God shows up in my husband Ryan's life is totally different than the way that I have seen and noticed and encountered the love of God. We need one another's stories. And if you're not sure who to ask, maybe pick up an autobiography of someone that you have learned from or someone that you respect their faith journey. Maybe listen to a podcast, but let's listen to those stories because they encourage us, especially in those seasons of our lives and we all go through them, myself included, where sometimes this just feels like words on a page. Sometimes it just feels like the love of God is distant or hidden. And it's in those moments that we need stories, our stories and one another's stories to remind us that's how we get through those dark or dry seasons. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for this love, this love that Paul struggled to express and describe, that I struggle to express and describe. God, would you help us? Would you help us to see, help us to notice the reality of your love at work in our lives? Help us to trust by faith when we notice even if we can't fully explain or articulate if there are no words. In those moments, God, when we feel shame, would you remind us? Would your spirit testify with our spirit on the inside that we are loved, that we are chosen, and that nothing, nothing we ever say or do or think or experience can ever separate us from that love? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.